Well, as a church, and for those of you that are with us for the first time, or those of you that haven't been around for a bit, uh, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. That, that's our uh, habit, that's our tradition, that's our conviction as a church to not just bounce around God's Word or go to favorite passages, but to get stuck into God's Word and to go through it in, in a systematic way. And we're going through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And we've been, we've been blessed with it. We've been uh, challenged by it. And, and now we're coming to parts of this portion of God's Word that's real and alive and, and, and for us that can be more difficult, that can be more challenging. And uh, as I said last week, uh, the particular passage that we're in now has uh, three C's. It can be confusing, it can be complex, uh, and it can be controversial. Now I trust that after last week and those who here last week, it's a little less confusing to you. It's still complex, but I trust it's a little less uh, confusing. But as I said last week, we were looking particularly at the principle of what this passage was saying. This week we'll be looking at that application for us now. And so I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to be with us and help us as we come around this passage of God's Word. So let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it's just as live and living now as it was when you delivered it to Paul those 2,000 years ago. We thank you that it's still relevant to us right now. And as we look through this passage, which we admit can be confusing, as we look at this passage that is complex and, and, and difficult, we plead with you that your Holy Spirit would enable us to understand what you are saying to us and help us to apply it into our hearts and our lives and our church now. And we recognize, Heavenly Father, that these parts of God's Word can be controversial and they can cause contention and, and sticking points. And we ask that you would unite us together even, Heavenly Father, if we come to different opinions or ideas, may we still be united in the love of Christ. And may you help us in that, we pray. But speak to us, we ask. And Almighty God, I plead with you again, as I do each week, that you would pour out your Spirit upon myself and enable me to do what I cannot do. Help me to declare from your Word and to clearly articulate, clearly share, clearly speak what you have to say to us from your word. Keep me from saying anything amiss or wrong and help me to say what you would have us to hear and may it be clear and may it come in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen. So I would encourage you uh, to have your Bibles open and to have your Bibles open in that passage that was just read for us in 1 Corinthians and chapter 11, uh, we started looking at the verses 2 through to uh, 16 last week. And, and last week we noted that, 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 that this passage comes out of questions and, and observations that have been made about the church. And there was obviously an issue there that Paul wanted to address and it seems as though that the church was suffering with some people who were not approaching public worship with the right heart and attitude. 
And the reason we know that they weren't approaching this public worship with the right heart and attitude was in their appearance. It seems as some of the men were covering their heads when they were prophesying and praying. It seems as some of the ladies were not covering their heads in that time of, prophecy, uh, in that time of, of public worship when they were praying and prophesying. Now, I've already mentioned that this idea of prophesying, what that means, is something we're going to come on to in more detail later. So we're just going to leave that as a side for the moment, but we will come back to it as we go through this book of 1 Corinthians, this letter. But there was this problem. Men were covering their heads and potentially looking effeminate with long hair, and women were not covering their heads or looking masculine with short or shaven hair. And and so what we did last week was look at what was the principle here, because so often this passage of Scripture gets grabbed and we get excited about to head cover or not head cover, to wear hats or not to wear hats. And in reality, that's not the big issue of the passage. And we want to find out what the principle of the passage is. And the principle is very, very clear. And the principle comes out from verses uh, 2 to 4. And the principle, as we saw last week, and the principle that is there clearly in black and white for us is this. It's a principle of headship. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is a husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, some of you may have a version which reads that the head of a woman is uh, a man. Well, the actual more correct definition, as the scholars would say, is wife and husband uh, there in that situation. That's because of the original word that was used and the context that it is uh, taken in. But the end result is not hugely, hugely uh, different. And we also noted last week, and we must remember this because this is so important, that biblical headship does not equate to status, but to role. This is where so many things go wrong, because men and women are created in the image of God, and they are equal in that sense. But in their equality, and we're going to come to this more later, they have different roles. And this role is the headship. The headship. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is a husband. The head of Christ is God. And we particularly thought the fact that God the Father and God the Son are equal. But in their equality, one of them had, God the Father has the headship role. And so we just caveated that principle with that thought. And then there was a direct application to the Corinthians. In verses 4 to 6, the direct application to the Corinthians. Paul was not trying to introduce a, a new behavioral pattern on the Corinthians, but just to hold the line against sort of self-indulgent excesses in the name of freedom. Some of the ladies in the name of freedom were, were taking off their head coverings and not having them in, in worship. And some of the men in the, in the idea of freedom and being able to do all things were wearing head coverings. And we saw last week that the head covering for a lady was, was a symbol of her 
uh, being subjection to her husband. It was a symbol of respect to her husband. It was a symbol of respect in that way. And so Paul told the ladies to cover their heads in public worship and to have long hair in obedience to the principle. And Paul told the men, and often we forget this, Paul told the men very clearly that they should not cover their heads. Males in Roman culture used to cover their heads when they were doing the Roman uh, ceremonies, and that was a heathen thing. And some of these men were bringing that into the church, and God didn't want it in the church. And so they were told not to cover their heads in public worship, and not to have long hair, not to look feminine. And that was to be in obedience with the principle. So there is this principle, and Paul applies it to the Corinthians in that way. And then he goes and reasons this principle and explains this principle and explains how he comes to this principle from creation. And we see this in verses 7 to 10. In verses 7 to 10, Paul explains why this is the case. He explains why the head of every man is Christ. He explains why the head of the wife is the husband. He explains why the head of Christ is God. Uh, He doesn't go into the latter one in so much detail, but we see the principles there. God made man and woman in his image. Paul takes us back to Genesis, and last week we spent some time there, didn't we? And we haven't got time to do it again this week, but we know from that account in Genesis that God made man and woman, and he made them in his image, and we looked on, they were very good, and they have equal value before God, and both man and woman are under God's authority. God is the creator, and it's God being the creator, he has the right to say what's happening. I remember vividly uh, in the Sunday school back home uh, in the UK, one of the guys was doing a talk and he got some clay and he made this lovely model clay man. And and he started telling a story about this clay man and, and the kids got really quite attached to this clay man. And then suddenly he just stamped on the clay man. And all the kids said, what have you done that for? He said, I made it. I can do what I like with it. He was a creator of that model. Now, God is a creator of the heavens and the earth, and unlike my friend who just randomly stamps on it, God does everything for a reason and a plan and a purpose. And in his plan and his purpose, he made male and female. And in making male and female, he gave them different roles. The wife is under her husband's authority. Children are under their parents' authority. We're not going to go into this in any detail, but Corinthians, sorry, Colossians uh, 3.20 and Ephesians 6.1-3 tell us clearly from God's word that's the case. And men, not all men, but men can have positions of leadership within the local church and those leaders within the local church are to be submitted to by both men and women in the local church. We see that in Hebrews 13, 13. God made man and woman in his image. They are equal. They're both under God's authority. They have different roles to do. And all of us find ourselves under different people's authorities that we need to submit to in different ways. And then the particular one that he brings out here is 
The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is a husband. The head of of Christ is God. And then as he makes this case from creation, or sometimes we call this creation's order or creation's mandate, he then brings in a warning. And we see a warning in verses 11 to 12. You see, people take this scripture and people make it say what works for them. And in history, and possibly in some parts of the world right now, men are abusing women and they're using this passage of Scripture to justify it. And it is wrong and sinful. And in some parts of the world, women are are acting violently in some ways, not physically violent, but violently against this, and there's an ardent, strong feminism which runs way beyond equality. And there's a warning. Paul, as it seems, through the work of the Holy Spirit realizes there's this challenge of going to extremes. We can go to extremes so easily. And, and, and Paul says, as male and females, well actually as God says, as male and females, we need each other. We complement each other. We are not independent of each other. As it says in verse 11, it's very clear. We are not independent. We need each other. And then Paul ramps it up in verse 12 and says, For as a woman came from a man, so that's when, at the very beginning, God took Adam, well, he made Adam out of the clay, breathed life into him, he did something different for Eve, he took a rib out of the man, put the man into a deep sleep, took the rib out, first operation ever held, and he took the rib out, and then from that rib he created woman, and so woman came from man, but it didn't stay that way. It says, a man is born from a woman. So now every one of us here, we've been brought into the world through the means that God ordained, and that was a woman. We have this cycle completed, and this underlined, but everything comes from God. And so we, we have this principle, this warning here in this passage, that we're not to get it wrong. We're to get this right. There's a complementary situation going on. They're not independent of each other. We need each other. And we're reminded that from the beginning right the way through now, God has this plan, but it all comes from God. And then verses uh, 13 through to 16, Paul comes back and he makes an appeal to nature for this, uh, for this uh, principle. And he says that this is what the church practices. He reminds people, he says, look at creation. He says, men naturally have shorter hair. And men, we do naturally have shorter hair because we have testosterone and our hair falls out and we go bald and it's just the way it is. And we have naturally shorter hair. And women have naturally longer hair. And God created us in this way. He created us not just to be different, but to look different. He made us look different. And one of the big symbols of that difference, as we see here, is our hair. Now, Rachel and I had an interesting discussion in the car today because, uh, as we know, quite a lot of you ladies here, African ladies, your hair is not your hair, but it's long. And I think the principle we have to see here and the principle we have to note here is ladies from Africa look like ladies. Their hair shows it. 
I, I don't see these guys weaving great things into their hairs. And, and I'm sure if you did, you would take some grief for it. And, and so, yes, there is differences in culture here, but this underlying message is there is a difference between male and female, and nature shows it, and it symbols itself in our hair. And then the other principle that... Uh, Underlines this. The other thing that underlines this is at that time it seems as though all the other churches were quite happily going along with this, and it was just at Corinth there was a bit of a problem, a bit of a sticking point. And so Paul brings it there. And so he makes this point very, very clearly. The principle is clearly, clearly, clearly there. And the question we come to is where does that leave us now? What does that mean for us now? You see, Paul wanted this headship principle to be seen in the church at Corinth as they worshipped together. He wanted it to be seen. And, and the practical application for them in public, in public worship was for men not to have their hairs covered in submission to God. And for the wives to have their, hairs, their, hair, their heads covered in submission to their husbands. And so the big question is, what does God want us to do? 2,000 years on here in Lefkosha, what does God want us to do with this? And so, I want to be brave and I want to start with the side issue of head coverings. And I'm going to underline it. I want to say it again. I believe the head coverings here is a side issue. It's not the main thing, the main dish, the main dinner, the main issue. The big issue is the headship issue. But so often, the devil gets in and we get excited to cover or not to cover. And I think this is something that, that, that's, that's real for many of you in, in your African context. And it's certainly something that can be real within uh, the UK and Europe. And there seems to be a resurgence now of, of, of some folk that are believing that head coverings is, is the way forward. And so whether a woman, a lady today in a church service should wed, wear a head covering or not depends on whether the custom of head covering in the first century is to be understood as a practice intended for the present day. So, so this is the question we are. Does it apply to us now? Does God intend us now to follow that cultural practice? And some Christians, believers, trusting and loving in the Lord Jesus Christ, come to the persuasion that ladies should have their heads covered in public worship. I'm not going to start working out whether that should be a hat or a headscarf or anything. We're just going to talk about head covering, yeah? In general. And they believe that Paul's teaching of head covering is timeless. And it's transculture. And it's a way of applying this principle. And if you believe this principle, and if you believe that this is a, a tran cultural transcendent issue, then 
head covering is what you believe you should do. And there are a lot of Christians that have come to that persuasion. And if that is a position that you prayerfully have come to, not just inherited as a tradition, that you prayerfully have come to, then you need to act accordingly. You need to wear a head covering. But that's what you should do. But other Christians say that the, the head covering was a cultural application of this principle relevant to those times, but not relevant to the situation they find themselves in now. So they say, yes, that was right for the Corinthians to show the headship of, of, of Christ, the headship of their husband at that time. But times have changed, and we still passionately believe that God is the head of man and the head of the church, and, 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 and we passionately believe that husbands are the head of the, the, their wives, and we, we believe that, but we don't believe that a head covering is necessary now because the culture of the day doesn't understand it. In fact, some parts of the world, the culture of the day, would find it very strange and almost insulting to think that was the case. And, and, and their argument would, would go on to say that the, the principle of headship is clear. There's no doubting that. The principle of headship is clear. And when you look in the Old Testament, you see that principle of headship throughout the whole of the Old Testament. It starts in Genesis, and it follows through the whole of the Old Testament. And it comes into the New Testament, and Jesus taught about headship. And we see headship in the Acts of the Apostles, mirrored in the teaching. And then we see the principle of headship found not just in one of the epistles, but in several of the epistles. And the difference is this. Head coverings are only mentioned here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And, and the very, very beginning when this headship was established, we don't read of God telling Eve to wear a head covering. In fact, God telling anyone to have a head covering throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there's a silence there in this regard. And Jesus didn't talk about head coverings. And in the Acts of the Apostles, when the church is established, there's no mention of head coverings. And in the epistles, there's only this mention here. And so people that, that take that view would say, well, that doesn't mean, that means that the principle is the important thing here, and, and the head covering is a cultural symbol of it. And as our culture doesn't have that, it's not appropriate, it's not necessary for us to use. So what does that mean to us? Friends, both views are welcome here at LPC. And if Pastor Andrew and Daphne were here, you could see that even within the eldership, there's a difference of opinions. Because Mummy Rachel is resplendent without a head covering, and if Mummy Daphne was here, she'd be resplendent with a head covering. That's my parents' conviction 
from God's word. And this is where I stand and Rachel stand with it. But it's not something that we should be falling out over. It is not something that should be divisive. It's not something that those that wear hats think they are better than those that don't, and those that do think that they are better than those that are not, because we've already dealt with that before. We've been dealt with these things in, in the earlier part of Corinthians where people had a conscience to do or a conscience not to do. We have to leave that. You see, 16 says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. We shouldn't be contentious about this. We shouldn't get uptight about that. There are bigger things at stake. Now, as I've already confessed, my personal sympathy, my personal view is more of that of the, the latter. But there are some caveats with that. Because if you are living in a culture that shows respects to their husbands and authority by ladies wearing head coverings, then you should wear a head covering. Because that's showing it culturally in that setting and people will see the principle of headship alive and real within the church family. Now, conversely, if that culture says that men should wear head coverings, you can't. Because God has clearly talked about short hair and long hair, and we have to be aware of working through these minefields. If you're in attendance in a church where the culture to wear head coverings, so you've gone to a new place, you've found a great church, and they're all wearing head coverings, and you don't, then you may want to consider out of respect and love to that church of wearing it to make them feel comfortable and happy. You may want to think about that. And husbands, if, if your wife or daughter has a different opinion to you on this issue, then I believe you can expect obedience to your position because that's what the headship is all about but it would be wrong for you to say like a caveman you woman I man obey that's not what this is teaching you see it has to be worked out in the light of 1 Peter 3 and 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So if there's a difference of opinion within a marital relationship, yes, the husband has that authority role, but there needs to be a love and compassion and understanding. And wouldn't it be awful if... The prayers of that couple were hindered over that issue. That's what happened. So it needs to be dealt with delicately and sensitively. And, and if you are persuaded that head covering is not applicable for today, how will you practically show the principle of headship in your life and in the context of this passage in corporate worship particularly? It's a question you have to answer. So if, if you don't think that it's culturally relevant to wear a head covering, how do you show what the Apostle Paul was telling the Corinthians to show by wearing head coverings? How does it work out in your life? 
And if you're persuaded that head covering is applicable for today, and there are, then you need to ask yourself, are there other ways that you should be demonstrating this principle in your life and in corporate worship? Because a lot of people won't understand it. How do you show it? You see, we live in a day and age now where there is so much emphasis put on style and vibe. Style, what you look like, and vibe, how you act. And that's why Instagram and social media is so popular, because it's just a a means of showing off your style and showing off your vibe. And the question I want to ask us all today as we move away from hats, as we move to thinking, what, is, what, is, what are we saying in our lives? What does your style and what does your vibe say about you? Or deeper, what does your style, what does your vibe say about your relationship with God and this principle of headship especially? That's a deep question, but it's a really important question because this is what this passage is saying to us now. In this situation, yes, as we go about our lives here in Lefkosha, what does your style and vibe say about you? What does it say about your relationship with God? What does it say about the principle of headship? Can people see from your vibe and your style that Christ is your head? Can people see from your style and your vibe that the only one that matters is obeying King Jesus? What about the style and the vibe within the church? What does that say? This is where Paul is in this passage. What does this church's style and vibe say about the principle of headship? Can people come here from outside and do they realize that Jesus is central and he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we are in subjection to him and God our Father? Or do people just come in here and think, oh, they have a good time, they enjoy themselves? What is the style and the vibe? And what does it say about the principle of headship? You see, a church should not simply reflect the culture of the day, but it should reflect the kingdom of God in a way that is sensitive but not subordinate, not under the culture of the day. That's a challenge. Our style and our vibe should not simply reflect the culture of the day, but it should reflect the kingdom of God. We are God's children. And and yet, at the same time, we need to do this in in a sensitive way to the culture of the day, but not subservient, not under it. We shouldn't be led by the culture of the day. We should be led by the kingdom of God, but we should be doing it in a way that is sensitive and understanding. You see, if we we took some of these principles and and really went to town with this way of the kingdom of God, we we said, well, you've probably got it, you have got it. And and I hope I don't offend anybody here, and I apologize. But I believe that in in Nigeria, there's a group that all go to church barefooted in white clothes. Yeah? Now, that is, in their minds, following the kingdom of God. 
but it's not been that sensitive to the culture of the day. Because if you go and worship that in that church and you've got your jeans and your T-shirt on, or your suit on, you're gonna, you look like a sore thumb. And then, so we need, to, we need to work these things through. You see, the passage clearly tells us that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so the question is, what does that practically look like in the church? What's the style and vibe that reflects that? And this is a big issue that we should be thinking about. We shouldn't get so caught up in head-covering wars that we forget that. This is what it's about. And so there was some points that I raised last week that I said I wanted to go into more detail this week. And that is that the headship of Christ should be seen in the church. It should be seen. It should be felt. People should realize as they come in here, as they spend time with us as a church family, they should realize that we are under the authority of Christ. They should understand that God is central to what we are all about. And how do we show that? How do people see that? It's not by doing weird things. They may seem weird to the culture of the day, for sure. But we're not to say let's be as strange or as different as we possibly can. There's a joke in England and Scotland. You know about the Scottish men. And the Scottish men wear kilts. Yes? And then for some of you, you think that kilt looks like a skirt. Well, it's not. It's a kilt. And it's very important you make that distinction. But the story goes like this. The Scots and the English weren't getting on so well together. And the Scots wanted to work out how they could make themselves look different to the English. And they said, well, we won't wear trousers, we'll wear a kilt. We will look different, yes? And, and, and we are not to sort of take that attitude of we want to look different. We need to take the attitude of saying we want to look Christ-like. We must look Christ-like. Christ is the head of the church. And if looking Christ-like is different to the world, so be it. But we don't say Let's see how different we can be and bring that in. That's not the way. We've got to be driven the right way. And the driving factors here is we want Christ to be at the head. We want the Lord to be central. And so God's word needs to be obeyed despite the culture of the day. What this passage is saying to us now is against culture. It's totally against culture of the day. You see, God gave gender. He gave us male and female, full stop. And the culture of the day is telling us that there are many genders. And the culture of the day is telling us that you can get up one morning and be one gender and go to bed that night another gender if you just change your mind. And that's the culture of the day. And we're to stand firm against that culture of the day because God in the beginning created male and female. And he created them in his image. And so we have to hold on to this. And similarly, there are gender roles that should be honored and kept alive within the church because God gave them. He made us different. And we need to hold on to these. I'm going to come on to that a bit more later. Men need to be manly. Nature tells you that. You have short hair. Women need to be womanly. Nature tells us that. 
You need to have, you're given long hair. Men and women have to submit to those that the Lord has placed over them. The Lord has placed over them. And the need to demonstrate that submission in, in, a, in a biblical and culturally relevant way. And so we have to be willing to be anti-cultural. And we need to recognize that we need to protect the equality of man and woman before God. And we have to recognize the practices of the different roles that the sovereign creator has given to us. And so very, very practically, I want to suggest some of these following to get us going. If we want to be seen as a church where Christ is our head, then we need to put God's word first before our own comfort and before the culture of the day. Our comfort and the culture have to come second to God's word. Because God's word is the authority. And so in relevance to this passage, that means that, gentlemen here, you should dress and behave like gentlemen and be readily identifiable as a man. No ambiguity. You look like a man. You act like a man. You are a man because God made you a man. There'll be differences across the board. Some of you will be tall, some of you will be short, some of you will be thick set, some of you some of you academic, some of you will be hard laboring working types. We're all different. But in the general sense, men should dress and behave like men and be readily identifiable as a man. And on the other side, ladies should dress and behave like ladies and be readily identifiable as a lady. It seems simple, it seems obvious, but in this day and age, this has been eroded, and this is going to go against culture, because unisex, androgynous, pansexual, and transsexual are all styles and vibes that are not, that are not faithful expressions of God's order. They're not. They are way, 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 way from it. But the world is screaming at you and telling you that it's cool to sort of change your gender, change your sexuality, play around with it. It doesn't matter if you're a man, you look like a woman, or a woman, you look like a man, or you can play around with it, just do what... And these are not faithful expressions of God's order. And they are not in keeping with this principle in this passage of God's Word. Creation... In the beginning, God created male and female. But whilst those things, and you know of them, are not faithful expressions of God's kingdom, there is no place in the church for hate, spite, anger, or aggression to anyone who has that style or vibe. I want to underline that. Yeah? I'm going to call that out as sin because that's what it is. 
But that doesn't give God's church the right to show hate or spite or anger or aggression to someone who has that style or vibe. Our role is love and grace and compassion to be Christ-like. And we need to remember that love will say what needs to be said, but it will say it in a very different way. And tragically, the church has been stereotyped and the church has been guilty of hate and spite and anger in these issues and it's caused greater problems. And that's not where we're at. So don't think for a minute I'm saying it's not sin, it is sin. But we need to get that balance right. And so practically, if a believer in the church has that style or vibe, then they need love and care and sensitively to be taught what God's Word teaches. And that needs to be done by those around them that are close to them, that care for them and can help them. It's not a fair game for the whole church to pick on them. That's not what it's about. They need care and help and love like we all do as sinners. And if a non-believer in the church has that style of vibe, someone new just rocks into church, and you think, well, well, oh, it's a bit strange, yeah? We, we don't point them out. We don't. We love them. We care for them. We pray for them. We long for them. We hope that they will come to know the love of God through Jesus for themselves. We're not to judge them. That's God's job. We are to love, we are to point to Christ, we are to do all that we can. And so we need to remember these things in this day and age because this is against the culture. We need to be careful how we treat the different sexes, male and female. Misogyny, the dislike, contempt for, or ingained ingrained prejudice against women has no place in the church. The church should not be misogynistic. It's charged with that. That's not what it should be. And I learned a new word. Misandry. Come across that one? It's just the other way around. Yes, it's a dislike and contempt or ingrained prejudice against man. And that has no place in the church. Extreme feminism has no place in the church. Extreme misogyny, or whatever the male feminine that is on the other side, chauvinism shouldn't be there. Neither of the sexes should be treated as subordinate. Neither of the sexes should be treated as more important. And yet... Both of the sexes should not be treated the same. And that gets a bit confusing, doesn't it? And we need to open this up. Both of the sexes should not be treated the same because God made them differently. It would not be right to expect a man to give birth. It's a joke, isn't it? It's a bad one nowadays, it seems. And a woman 
cannot be expected to be as physically strong as a man. I do know some women that are stronger than men. But that's not the norm, yes? There are some norms here. Now, I can pick up a baby, and quite frankly, it looks like I'm holding a grenade that's about to explode. And invariably, that baby starts squawking, crying. And and yet, when I give that same baby to Rach, as if by magic, it snuggles up to her, looks comfortable, and stops crying. Have you ever wondered why that is? And my children, when they were ill, who did they go to? Rach. And when something was broken and needed fixing, who did they come to? And why was that? Interesting. When my sassy, strong, feministic, independent niece comes from the UK to stay, you know what happens when there's a spider in the room? I'm called to get it. I'm called to deal with it. Why? Men can compartmentalize their emotions, generally speaking. Lots of little boxes. And you put everything in a little box. And so you can have a blazing row with your wife and go to work and be as fine as anything. Just put in a box. But, but ladies, their emotions are all interconnected. It's all over the place. And doesn't nature itself teach you male and female are different? God made us different. He made us different. In the image of God, we are equal before God. But we are different before God because God made us different. And the world is screaming out and telling us lies about this. But the reality is, the truth is, that God made us different. These differences should not be denied. That's not equality. Denying these differences is not equality. Biblical equality is beautifully seen in verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. That's a beautiful interconnection. That's a beautiful equality. It's what it's all about. Just saying that men can do what women can do, women can do what men can do, and they should be exactly the same and exactly equal is not equality. Not biblical equality. Equality is we both have equal value before God. But God made us different. Verse 12, For as a woman was made from man, and so a man is now born of woman, all things are from God. Both have got equal value and status before God. Both are made in his image. God made them male and female and he made them different in nature and because he made them different in nature he gave them different roles. Adam was the gardener. Adam was the provider. And then Eve was brought to be the helpmeet, to be there, to help him, to be there, to be able to proclicate and produce children in that wonderful way that he brought about. And so this passage is screaming out to us that there is a complementary role between male and female. We need each other. We need our differences. We need the differences that God created. We need the God-given differences in our roles and in our responsibilities because they work in tandem. And when they work in tandem together, they give God 
the glory. And that is truly anti the culture and the direction of this day and age now. And that's how we're to be different. Men are to be unashamedly men. Men of God. Men who are willing to have a beard. Men who are willing to have short hair. Men that are willing to stand up and take care of and protect the woman folk. Men that when you are married, you are willing to die for your wife, just like Christ died for the church. To put yourself out there, to care for them in that way. And when you're given, and if you're given responsibility within a church environment, you're to do it as a servant in a Christ-like way. And similarly, ladies, you've been given a role that you alone can do. A role that God has given you. And we shouldn't get sucked in by the world's argument that one is better than the other. We are not better than each other. We need each other. And this is a perfect place within a church family to demonstrate that and show that and celebrate that and work with that. And I think that's what the real meaning of this passage is. That as we worship God together, the men are men and the ladies are ladies and we're under the authority, and we're under God's authority. And we're in this day and age when gender is confused, and authority is not wanted, and the truth that will set you free is denied. The church's aim should be to stand out as a beacon of hope not as a replica of the world's culture. That would be seen as a shame by the angels. But to stand out as a beacon of hope, pointing people to Christ. Pointing people to the truth that will set them free. Pointing people to the fact that Christ came to this world to pay the price of the sins of his people so that we could be made right with God. And so Paul said, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is a husband and the head of Christ is God. Let's pray that God helps us to apply that principle in a way that glorifies his great and holy name. I just want to give you a few moments to, to pray and think over that uh, for yourselves.